This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the news panel gets together, and that means the panelists are in place. Right next to me in Studio 7 is Joita Gupta. Hello again, Joita. Hello again, Dave. And via the magic of the interwebs, Michelle McQuig is somewhere in the GTA. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Dave. All right, everybody's loud and clear. Let's jump right into it. Newfoundland and Labrador has announced a poverty reduction plan. There will be an expansion of a supplement aimed at low-income families with young children. The child benefit tax credit will also increase by 300%. The plan also includes a basic income program for residents aged 60 to 64 who are receiving social assistance. Premier Andrew Fury says the three-year phased plan will streamline the provincial income support system. Michelle, that is just the thumbnail of thumbnailist sketches Truly, of what yeah. is laid out in Newfoundland and Labrador. But what do you want to explore here? Yeah, well, you're right. That is a that is a summary, a good one. But it's just the summary of a of a sweeping overhaul. This government is is deeply revamping the province's social welfare system. They're trying to cut down. They had they had thirty programs all dealing with social assistance on some level. They're trying to streamline that down to six. Um, in a bid to try to make it easier to navigate. That's that's one aspect that, that strikes me as interesting. But the, the universal basic income is really the, that's the, 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 the headline-grabbing item. That's the one everyone zeroed in on, and I'm no different because this is something that we've talked about on this panel before. We've seen basic income pilots floated sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes even executed, only to be scrapped by an incoming other government. Uh, that happened in Ontario, in fact. There were three communities that were doing a pilot project on a very limited basis, and that project was underway, but then there was a change of government and uh, that no longer aligned politically with the new government's priorities and that got shelved. So now we have one with a government with a bit of time to actually implement it and they're targeting a decent sized swath of people and that they're going for people who are 60 to 64. They're not targeting certain communities. They're talking about 60 to 64 year olds who are already on social assistance and they're going to get that basic income. We don't have a lot of details about what the income will look like yet, but this seems to me like a, a, a a bit of a bolder approach than what we've seen in other communities that sort of tentatively try things and then they get shelled. So that's really what kind of jumped out at me is this this massive overhaul to a program that the the doctor, the, the, the premier who happens to be a doctor feels is really necessary. And uh, there's just, there's so much to go with here and, and it'll be interesting to really see how some of the theories and, and, and practices that we've talked about as a potential uh, meaningful change are actually going to be executed. So now we'll have a bit of a pilot project of our own to look at. So yeah, what Michelle's referring to about Premier Fury, uh, who previously worked as a doctor, actually talked about public health outcomes of better financial mm -hmm. supports. That was a core part of what he talked about when unrolling this plan on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Joita, Michelle kind of drove the bus there towards universal basic income. Mm -hmm. So why don't you and I start there? Why don't we begin the conversation there and then backtrack to more broadly some of the other interesting pieces? But how do 
you think NL's Newfoundland and Labrador's approach of UBI could at least serve as something of a national template? I, like, I'm, I'm going to preamble on you a little bit more here, Joita. I think to call it UBI is actually a little disingenuous yes. because of like how mm -hmm. restrictive it is. Like you already have to be on social assistance and you're in this like very narrow scope. So I don't actually know how useful this could be <laughs> necessarily as like a national template or a UBI uh, trial balloon, but it does speak to something that people have been talking about on disability supports or labor supports or welfare for a long time saying UBI is one of these bridges or, or basic income is one of these bridges to benefit the overall program. Are you able to read my notes from over there? Like what's going on here? Because we are literally <laughs> about to make the same points. And I would hesitate to go so far as to call it universal basic income for precisely the reason mm -hmm. that you mentioned, which is it doesn't really apply to a very large segment of the population. It does apply to a very interesting segment of the population. You're right to say that even within the 60 to 64 age bracket, it only applies to those who are already in receipt of some form of social assistance. And the fact that it's creating a bridge between uh, provincial social assistance programs and old age security and old age benefits is really interesting to me mm -hmm. because that's one of the places where people fall in through, fall through the cracks. The other one, of course, being uh, around the age of 18 when people age out of uh, the child welfare system and then they get into the adult system and there's a lot of people who get left behind or get left out. So there's a lot of things that it has going for it. I'm interested to see, because as Michelle alluded to, that there have been case studies in, in Ontario, but I would hazard a guess, guess that this is probably a much larger sample size compared to some of the prior incarnations of UBI, if you just want to go with that term. And so it is large enough a sample size, I think, uh, and even with all of its restrictions in place, that I suspect that if I were another province um, or I were the premier of another province, I'd be watching this one very closely. There are mm -hmm. other aspects of this program that I think are worth noting because uh, tackling childhood poverty uh, and the 300 percent increase in uh, child benefits, uh, benefits geared towards children, is very powerful. Uh, but setting that aside for a moment, I think what is really fascinating to me is the fact that because this is a large enough sample size, I think it's going to attract a lot of attention to see how it actually plays out. The devil, of course, is in the details in that um, these supplements are being touted as bringing people up to a hopefully a living wage and, uh, you know, topping off what people need to actually survive. But will it still keep pace with inflation five years from now? That is the question. So that I think a, a lot of people are going to be looking mm. at outcomes here and seeing what if uh, what kind of pressure it's going to put on the public purse. So, yes, it's a fascinating uh, entry into a very complicated yeah. issue. Okay, you guys are jumping all over. Michelle, Michelle, hold on. You, you guys are jumping all over the place here. Michelle, what's your caveat? <laughs> My quick caveat is that, to be fair, the province is not calling this universal basic income. Yeah, um, it's the fake news yeah. media that's calling it universal basic income. <laughs> that's right, the liberal, the media elite. Uh, but yeah, no, like they're not calling it that. Um, they, they are, they are just calling it a basic income for that population. So it's more just a quibble that they're not actually calling it a universal program because it's not. You're, you're absolutely right to point that out. Um, but the other thing I'll point out as an example, or as a, a potential advantage to studying these things, is that applying it across an age bracket rather than a specific community, you're going to see the effect in different geographical areas. We know we've talked about the urban-rural divide. We've talked about how costs differ to best based on where you live, and a program rolled out this way will be able to sort of assess whether the, the income level that they ultimately wind up setting is adequate to the needs in, in all parts of the province.
Here's where I challenge my own preamble that I put on the basic income question, where I do think there could actually be a little bit of a broader national picture conversation in regards to this very targeted attempt at basic income. It very much reminds me of perhaps the conversation going on around the national disability benefit, Michelle, that you're looking at people who are already on some kind of social assistance or social program and saying what could basic income or a boost look like in terms of outcomes. So that's where I actually could start looking at a national template in the idea of boosting or supplementing programs. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And I, and I have to say, I really like what Joita was talking about as well in terms of bridging uh, an age, providing a bridge for a demographic that is often overlooked. Uh, so I, I, I could see relevance for other provinces there. And frankly, it doesn't even have to be rolled out on a national level. I do think this could be a template for other like-minded provinces, and there are some. Uh, to to adopt something similar, we know there's an appetite for basic income out there. It's it's been increasingly touted as a solution over the past decade, and we see more and more provinces at least being willing to take a look at it. So I think once they have the Newfoundland program up and running, um, and, and some real tangible results to go with, I do think that some other provinces will get on board. Speaking of bridging, let's go back to Michelle's first fundamental question, which which of these measures do you find most interesting? I didn't mention this in my thumbnail sketch of the policy, but something Premier Fury laid out in this press conference was the idea of not losing your social benefits the second that you get a job. That, yes. that there's going to be a little bit of a timeline to figure out if that job's right for you. Is it consistent employment? When's that first paycheck coming in? Because for so long, Joita, a lot of poverty reduction advocates have pointed out that people are going to be leery of just taking any job to get off social assistance if it means a bunch of benefits disappear in the snap of a finger. That's right. And we're not just talking about the money disappearing. I mean, maybe you can replace the income, but often what comes along with the social assistance benefit package is the health and dental benefits. And a lot of jobs, especially entry-level jobs, don't have those benefits. And so even if people are able to keep the health and dental benefits intact, it can be a huge incentive to find work, especially if you're a person with a disability. That goes without saying, but I've said it. Uh, but even for families with small children, uh, being able to access basic health care or basic dental care through some of these social assistance programs is really important. But also bearing in mind that not everybody earns, uh, you know, maybe you start out working part-time, and you're not going to get full-time work. Uh, but if you start to claw back the social assistance uh, payments, the moment you bring in an income, the moment you declare income, then a family might actually end off end up being worse off. And the other issue, and I've actually dealt with this myself, um, is that when you start a new job, you're often brought in on an as-needed basis. So you don't have any permanent shifts assigned to you. And so mm -hmm. if you're on social assistance and maybe you get 30 hours of work one week, uh, one month, but the next month you only get five hours of work. That can be that kind of instability can cause havoc with your social assistance payments because sometimes you've, you know, you've overpaid, they've overpaid you, uh, and they're clawing back the next month, and so you might end up with very little money either from work or from social assistance. So if they can find a way to acknowledge the realities of starting a new job, part-time, instable, uh, instability, uh, and no, uh, you know, no guarantee. Like a lot of people start out work, but you know, you have to clear probation. So if they can have a sort of a recognition of the reality of starting a new job and smooth that transition for people, I think it's going to make a huge difference to people being not only able to find work, but actually even keep it. So, Michelle, you navigated this conversation towards basic income pretty quickly, but you didn't get an opportunity to react more broadly. <laughs> Which of these measures did stand out to you in terms of this poverty reduction plan? 
Yeah. In addition to the ones we've discussed, one that jumped out at me, you, you alluded, Dave, to the fact that the child benefit is being tri tripled from, it's going up by 300%, which is a very significant government investment. But the other aspect of that piece that I find interesting is that they're also going to extend it. A child benefit in, the, in that province initially was being paid out during the first year of a child's life. Now it's going to be paid out for the first five years. So again, a, a very significant expansion of that program. We're used to seeing a lot much more incremental change from governments, I think, than than these very sweeping reforms that we're seeing in this particular bill. That one jumps out at me because it shows me that there are, this is a, a province that's trying to look at social needs at all ages and all ends of the spectrum. Uh, we see the basic income targeting one demographic that's much, much further along the life path than the child benefit one. Um, but the other interesting piece there is that Newfoundland does have a history of, of high rates of child poverty. In fact, they have some of the highest in Canada, which... Um, you would you would think that perhaps some of the territories might uh, be in a similar position, but no, it's Newfoundland that's currently in the lead on that front. And uh, so these these seem like measures that are d directly trying to target um, that specific measure, and I do find that interesting. Um, Joita is right to talk about the the income uh, or. The, Dave, I guess it was you that raised the efforts to keep your income. I think that's an explicit goal that they're trying to make it easier to do that. That's huge, and I do think another interesting piece is trying to streamline all these programs from 30 down to six. Yeah, that jumped uh, out We to know me that too. a big a, a big part of, of navigating social assistance is just jumping through the bureaucratic hoops and trying to figure out which program means what. And 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 it, it can be so, so demoralizing for those who have to navigate that particular thicket. So Newfoundland is trying to make that easier too. So it just, it, all of every single one of these measures just speaks to me that this is a genuine priority for this government and they're willing to take some moves that we haven't, that we're not accustomed to seeing. Let's take a drive through Labrador into the province of Quebec mm. because Quebec has taken a bit of a different approach. They made some announcements this week as well, increasing some social assistance rates above the rate of inflation. So, for example, welfare payments will increase by over 5% on January 1st. Joita, how do you perceive boosted rates versus what I would call more of a systemic overhaul in Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, you see, the thing is, what I don't know about the Quebec rates is where those rates are vis-a-vis uh, -vis inflation, which has really shot up in the last three or four years, if they've kept pace with inflation. And so I'd be very curious, come January 1st, 2024, if uh, social assistance recipients in Quebec are actually better off or, uh, you know, than they were four or five years ago. So are they just playing catch-up? I'm, I'm, I'm going to say odds are no. Odds, <laughs> yeah, are, odds no. are no. <laughs> and so that's the big part of this. Um, the approach taken in Newfoundland is, if anything, way more interesting to me, partly because they are targeting select populations. And I think I've made the point about, you know, needing to, you know, doing equitable work by treating different groups of people differently, identifying high-risk uh, areas or people in higher needs, children, uh, people between the age of 60 and 64, and giving them a bit of an extra boost is really interesting. Whittling down 30 social assistance programs down to six is really quite remarkable. Think about the administrative savings. Instead of administering 30 programs, now you're going to whittle it down to six, and that's a lot more money you can put back in the pockets of people in Newfoundland. And the other thing that's really interesting about the Newfoundland approach, and that gives me optimism and hope, is that I think it also heralds a discursive shift in how we think about poverty and, and, and the poor. 
when, what they're doing in Quebec, though an adm admirable first step, is really leaving it intact. So we see the status quo, uh, and many of the attitudes that persist about the poor and people on social assistance also remain intact, because they're not really ch shaking things up. But I'm hoping that by bringing in a conversation about basic income, by addressing childhood poverty in a very aggressive way, we're going to do away with those age-old, tired distinctions between categories of deserving and undeserving poor, a basic mm -hmm. income heralds that everybody regardless of their circumstances, has a right to a, a minimum income, a basic income and a basic standard of living. And I think that's the real value in Newfoundland's approach in heralding this big discursive shift in how we think about poor and poverty reduction. Michelle, going back to the Quebec side of the conversation, mm -hmm. Joita and I must be sharing notes this morning because I also sort of had this thought of, okay, 5% is great once, but I believe that the broader conversation in poverty reduction is an actual indexing of social welfare payments to to inflation, inflation more broadly, totally. as opposed yeah. to sort of singular bumps. But I don't want to throw tomatoes at the province of Quebec for doing this, because it is still something people have been calling for uh, in Ontario, for example, for a long time and not getting it. Absolutely. It is. And 5% is a pretty significant bump. Uh, but it, it this speaks to where the, the two provinces are at politically, right? Uh, François Legault is a, is a more right-leaning premier. That, that government is generally—it's uh, actually a bolder move than I would have expected from this particular government, who, who doesn't seem to be overly fond of investing in social programs. So uh, on that front, I, I do think it's real progress. But yeah, the it does represent an upholding of the status quo by and larger, or is, are you propping up the status quo, whereas Newfoundland represents a very fundamental rethink of how this is done. But I will say that what Quebec has done here in, in acknowledging inflation is the one gap that people are identifying in the Newfoundland reforms and that the, the, that huge overhaul with all those new measures, what it does not include is an indexing to inflation. And a lot of people are saying that that does need to happen in order to make sure that people don't start falling behind again in 10 years time. So Quebec at least is acknowledging that particular piece of the complex reality of life on social assistance. Let's uh, put a pin in this one. I, I sense this will come back again, uh, whether it be uh, later in the year, or early next year, as this conversation continues. But really interesting topic being brought to the table there out of Newfoundland and Labrador with just a touch of Quebec in the mix for a little flavor as well. But coming up after the break, the focus shifts a little bit more federally. There's new data that shows the number of immigrants who are choosing to leave Canada is on the rise. So what are some policies that could lead to better immigration retention? Michelle, Juita, and I all have thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.